Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this good and mysterious and strange and wonderful book of Revelation that tells us that you are on the throne and that we can trust you. And so, Lord, we pray that each of us would hear this, this message today, that in our own individual lives, in areas where we are, we are struggling to, to believe, struggling to stand firm, struggling to trust you, that you would show us today that you are, that you are sovereign over history and that you are sovereign over our lives. So, God, I pray that this word would teach us today um, about how we can, can trust in you. In Christ's name, amen. So over the next four weeks, we are going to be diving into different parts of Revelation chapter 6 through 17. And we're going to be looking at this main question that we mentioned last week. This is the, the main question that we're going to be focusing on. How do we, we remain faithful to the Lamb in a world that is feverishly following the dragon? How do we remain faithful to the Lamb in a world that is feverishly following the dragon? Revelation tells us the truth about who Jesus the Lamb is and about the way that he rules the world. Revelation was written to Christians, to followers of Jesus in the first century who were under intense pressure to conform, the, to, conform to the way of the world and to reject Jesus in one way or another. And so John's vision, this revelation was written them to encourage them to stay firm and to stay true and to hold on to Jesus the Lamb. Jesus the Lamb is in control, Revelation says. Jesus the Lamb can be trusted. And so when it seems like our own lives or the events of the world out there are out of control, Revelation makes it clear that nothing could be further from the truth. The throne at the center of the universe is occupied. It's not empty. It is the throne of God Almighty and the Lamb, and He is in control. He is protecting His people. He is at work bringing His good and perfect judgment over sin and evil in our world. So, church in Smyrna and Philadelphia and Laodicea and the seven churches that this was written to, stand firm, don't give up. The Lamb is sovereign over all of history, and that includes your unique circumstances in your city and your time. So, Broadway Christian Church in Fort Wayne, stand firm. Hold on tightly to your faith. Don't give up. Hold on to the Lamb who will be victorious. And if you hold on and stand firm, you will share in His victory. So over the next four weeks, I want to highlight four key truths about the way that the Lamb rules that are communicated in this next dozen chapters or so of the book of Revelation. And I think knowing and holding on to these four truths will help us to Continue to be faithful to the Lamb while the world is following the dragon. Here are the four key truths over the next few weeks. First, this is the one we're looking at today, that the Lamb is sovereign over history. Next, this is for next week, the Lamb is shepherd over his people. And then the, the Lamb is just in all his judgments. And then last, the Lamb is victorious over all evil. 
These are the four themes that we're going to look at over the next four weeks. But before we dive into this truth that the Lamb is sovereign over history, I want to spend a little bit of time today giving you a little bit of a refresher on how we look at the book of Revelation, how we read it, and how we understand the symbolic images and numbers in this book. The book of Revelation is a vision of that John had of heavenly realities, of spiritual realities. And this vision is communicated to us through vivid imagery and symbols and metaphors. The vision that John has is not a video recording of heaven. It's not a video recording of the future. The images that John sees and communicates to us are symbols of the truth. Metaphors that point beyond themselves to some truth about God or about the evil one or about our own lives or about the world. A picture is worth a thousand words, and God knows that. He made us. He knows that pictures and images stir our hearts and emotions in ways that simple facts can't. So, let me give you a couple examples of what I mean about these symbols in the book of Revelation. Revelation 4 and 5 talks about the lamb who looks as if it has been slain. When we are in the presence of God, we're not going to see a lamb looking as if it's been slain. Jesus is a resurrected, glorified human being with scars on his hands and his feet. John saw an image, a symbol, a picture of the slain lamb in the center of the throne that points beyond itself, that communicates truth to us about who Jesus is, about the work that he has done, and about the fact that he is on the throne. Today, we are going to read in Revelation 12 and 13 about an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. We're going to read about a beast coming up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with a crown on each head and another beast who had two horns like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. This is not a video recording of the future. Human beings will not one day see this dragon or see these two beasts. Instead, these are symbols that point to the reality of demonic powers and to corrupt human authority that deceive the world and that as followers of Jesus that we need to be aware of. They are symbols that represent realities, in fact, that you and I experience every single day, but that we don't notice with our earthly human eyes. These symbols are meant to tell us in this very bold and startling and unsettling way that there is a cosmic battle going on, that it's serious, that it's real, and that it has eternal consequences for your life. The images and metaphors point beyond themselves to describe reality in a way that just stating the facts wouldn't do. And the Bible does this all of the time. When the psalm says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, are we saying that God is a rock or a fort? No, we are saying something about the character of God and who he is for us. Those symbols point beyond themselves to some truth about God that can't be communicated by just simply stating the facts about who God is. The word gives us images to light up our imaginations about who who God is. 
Psalm 23, it holds such a strong tie in our minds because of those beautiful and powerful images about who God is for us as our good shepherd, who leads us beside still waters, and who holds the rod and the staff, and who will one day lay a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Images and pictures, these poetic descriptions of reality, have this way of getting into our gut getting into our imaginations and changing us at that level. God made us, and he knows that images and pictures move and change us, that a picture is worth a thousand words. This book is written in a way to evoke an emotional response from us, to stir up our imaginations for the very real forces of evil that are in our world, and that are against God, and that want to destroy your life, and to destroy your faith in Jesus. Images of dragons, and beasts, and harlots drinking the blood of the martyrs, those are really scary images. Our imaginations, our hearts, our minds are meant to be open to the very real and powerful forces of evil in this world that are against you. Revelation is telling us that we need to take them seriously. These powerful images tell us that Satan is not messing around. He has a plan and a purpose to steal and to kill and to destroy your life and your faith. And the Revelation also shows us that in the face of dragons and beasts and blood-drinking harlots, that there is one who is greater. The Lamb who was slain for the world, who rules in power, And who will be victorious over every bit of evil? And we can share in that victory if we will hold on to him. The second thing that we need to remember about these these symbols is that these are symbols that the first readers would have understood. They would have been familiar to them in their cultural context. I'm going to show a, a political cartoon up here that has a couple of images. Now, if you lived almost anywhere else in the world, would you have any idea what this is about? We've got a donkey and an elephant sitting on top of some sort of important building that's cracked down the middle. But we're Americans, and these symbols of a donkey represent the Democratic Party, and the elephant represents the Republican Party. And so as we look at this picture, as we think about it, It says some things to us about our political situation and about the division that we are experiencing in in our country. We only know that because these symbols make sense to us, because we live in our own cultural context right now in 21st century America, and we know that for some strange reason the Democratic Party is represented by a donkey and the Republican Party is by an elephant. I don't know, I don't remember or know where that came from. Some of you probably do, but... We just know that this is what this cartoon is about because these images and symbols are embedded into our minds because they are a part of our culture. The same would have been true about the symbols that were given in the book of Revelation. They would have known about the Lamb from the the Old Testament and the, the stories of the Old Testament. They would have known about the symbols of the dragon and the beast and how those related to political powers and how the dragon related to, uh, to Satan. They would have had those in their imagination. And so when they heard them, it would have made sense to them. John writes this letter and he uses these symbols and images 
that the first readers of Revelation would have understood. In the same way that we understand a donkey and an elephant in this cartoon, he uses these symbols and images to communicate to us theological and spiritual truths about the way that God is bringing about his purpose in the world. The way that he is bringing about his redemption in the world. The way he is bringing about his judgment in the world. So again, these images and symbols that we read are not a video recording of something that we're going to see someday. I want to suggest to you that it's much more terrifying than that. That these are realities right now that are being communicated to us that we need to be on guard against and that we need to be aware of. And we can't see them with our eyes. And so God in his mercy gave John this vision, this revelation to tell us about these forces that are against us. And also to tell us that if we hold on to the Lamb, we will share in His victory. So today, we're going to focus on this, this one truth, that the Lamb is sovereign over history. You've probably heard some of the, the jokes that um, pastors like to tell when they are looking at the book of Revelation. You know, when we get to talking about the the millennium, you know, the different views of the millennium, you know, amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, and then they say, I'm a panmillennial, it'll all pan out in the end, you know, or, you know, that, that really, all we really need to know at the book of Revelation is that we win. You know, that's the only thing that we need to know. I think there's a whole lot missed in those two summaries, but they're both also very true. The message of the book of Revelation is that Jesus, the Lamb, wins, that he will have the victory, and everything will work out for good in the end. This is declared at the very beginning of the book when Jesus tells John that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. Jesus tells John that he is sovereign over history, that he is the one who holds the keys to death in Hades, that he is in control of our greatest enemy, death. Revelation 4 and 5, that, that whole scene of the heavenly throne room that we looked at a couple of weeks ago is centered around that one question, who is worthy to open up the scroll? Remember that what the scroll was? The scroll was in the right hand of God sitting on the throne, and we said that that scroll is God's uh, plan and purpose for history. It's his will for, for the world. So who is worthy to open this scroll? The whole question around Revelation 4 and 5, the whole problem that this story is trying to answer is who is worthy to open this scroll and to reveal and to execute God's will for the world. We win, or more accurately, the Lamb wins, is a good summary of the book. The final book does reveal that Jesus, the Lamb, is sovereign over history. He is in control. He will bring about his purposes in the end. It will all pan out in the end. But friends, there's a lot going on before that that's important for us to know. So that we, in whatever circumstance we're in, can hold on and endure until the end. Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. John says this, chapter, one, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals... Then I heard one of, the four, one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse, 
Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one, and its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other, and to him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. As the Lamb begins to open the scroll of history, God's plan and purpose and his will for the world, we immediately begin to read about the reality of suffering. War and famine and plague and death. And these have been realities in history since the beginning of time. And I want you to notice something here. That the Lamb is beginning to open up the seals of the scroll. You can't open up the scroll until all seven seals are opened, right? It's not like he's turning a page and reading the next part that's happening. What he's doing is he's beginning to open up the scroll to begin to say, I'm about to reveal God's plans and purposes for the world. And what we see here in Revelation 6 is that before we get to read about God's plans and purposes for the world, tragedy and suffering will still be present with us. When Jesus talked about the end, when he was with his disciples, he talked about war and famine and plague, and he called these things birth pains. God, through Jesus, is bringing about the new heaven and the new earth. But before that happens, there will be birth pains. Before that new world comes into being, evil and suffering will be experienced by human beings. And we are right now in this in-between period in human history. The Lord has won the victory over sin and death by his death on the cross and his resurrection. But his victory has not yet been fully implemented yet. And so God is at work bringing his judgment of evil, and evil is raging. God is at work bringing his judgment against Satan, and so Satan is raging. And so we live in this time where war and famine and plague and death are still present with us. They are still realities that every human being has to continue to face. And not only that, but as the fifth seal is opened... We're told that in in this in-between time, before we get to hear and to experience the full reality of God's plans and purposes, there is unique suffering that comes through being a follower of Jesus. Look at verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? 
Then each one of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed, as they had been, was completed. In this in-between time, there are followers of Jesus who will die for their faith. Martyrs who will die. Those who follow Jesus, who gave up everything for him. And in this vision, they are crying out, How long, O Lord, until you bring your judgment on the earth? How long do God's people have to continue to suffer? How long do God's people have to continue to experience persecution? And the answer to their question is to wait a little while longer because God has a plan for the martyrs. The answer is wait a little bit longer because there is a specific number of martyrs in mind that God has in mind that will follow Jesus to the death who by their own death will reveal to the world that Jesus is Lord. What we read here is that God has a purpose in the suffering of God's people. He is working something out in their suffering. It does not surprise him. He is in control over it. It's evil that kills martyrs, but we see that over and above that evil, God is working out his own purpose in the midst of that suffering. Here in Revelation chapter 6, we're reminded that the Lamb is in control, that he is sovereign over history. That terrible things do happen in our world. Terrible things have happened to you. Tragedy is a part of life before God's final plans and purposes are revealed. We cannot understand those tragedies. We cannot explain all of the reasons why evil exists. This is the the great question of the entire book of Job is why does evil exist? Why does good things why do good things bad things happen to good people? But we are told in the book of Revelation that God is at work bringing about his purposes through this suffering. And we're told that we can trust him. That we can trust that he is in control. They are not outside of God's ability to turn and to make for his good and for his purpose. The Lamb is sovereign over history, but there are other forces in the world that are trying to grasp on to his power and to his sovereignty. I want to skip ahead to Revelation chapter 12 and 13. In Revelation 12 and 13, we are introduced to three terrible creatures— that are trying to grasp hold of God's power and God's authority and to take it for themselves. In Revelation 12 and 13, we're introduced to the dragon, to the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth. And in these chapters, the dragon, we are told, is a symbol of Satan, the deceiver. And the beasts, I suggest to you today, are symbols, this is important, the beasts are symbols of oppressive and unjust political authority. The beasts are symbols of oppressive and unjust political authority. I'm going to read a section of this to you. I can't read the, both chapters, but I'm going to read Revelation chapter 12, verses 13, starting in verse 13. And I'm going to read through chapter 13, verse 11. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, there was this great war in heaven between Michael and the angels and uh, the dragon and his angels. And God and the angels threw the dragon to the earth. 
he pursued the woman. The woman is a symbol for God's people or the church. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times and a half time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So the beasts received their power and their authority from the dragon, the evil one. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words of blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So he who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. I was listening to an interview this past week with former President George W. Bush. And um, he's got a new book coming out. It's his paintings about immigrants. It's a really interesting book. I just took a little bit of a look, a look on it online. But he's kind of making his tour, giving some interviews to promote this book. But he was talking about his time in the White House now over, over 20 years ago. And he said something that I thought was really interesting. He says, when I became president, I realized very quickly that power is corrupting. He said, once I was president, I could think I'm powerful, and so I must be all-knowing. I'm powerful, and I can do what I want. Or I'm powerful, so I can benefit my friends. I thought this was an incredibly humble and honest thing for him to admit as he reflects back on his life 20 years later. And I think that that is a perfect summary of the powers of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. Political authority, as he experienced early on in his presidency, he said it felt intoxicating. And Satan, the dragon, knows that political authority is intoxicating. And so Satan is always at work, the dragon is always at work giving authority to kings and emperors and presidents and prime ministers who are tempted to take more authority than has been given to them by God. 
and to declare that everyone should worship them. We are told in the Bible that government is a good thing. It is for the purpose of creating order and carrying out justice in society. But governments and political authorities are always tempted to take more authority than they've been given by God. And by doing so, they then follow the way of the dragon. When governments step outside of the God-given purposes for them, they begin to become beastly. They become beast-like. So in Revelation 12, John sees a vision of the way that the dragon, we are told, is Satan himself. In Revelation 12, there's this great war where he's seeking to destroy God's people, and it doesn't work. At the very end of chapter 12, we see the dragon, like, exhausted at the edge of the sea. It didn't work. He lost his battle. So he has a different strategy. And he begins to empower these beasts, these government authorities, these political authorities to go about doing his work. So these symbols of these two beasts become a symbol of unjust political authority. And these creatures, the dragon, the beast, and the beast, they're all seeking to deceive and destroy God's people by taking authority that doesn't belong to them. It's really interesting in this passage that the dragon and the beast and the beast, they actually all try to mimic God. They try to be like God. They try to be like the Lamb. In Revelation 12 and 13, the dragon has a throne and authority, like God has throne and authority in Revelation 4 and 5. The dragon gives authority over to the beast, like the father gives authority over to the son. Revelation 13:3 says that the beast seems to have a fatal wound, just like the lamb who was looking as if it had been slain. In Revelation 13, it says that the beast was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. Who is said to have authority over every tribe, tongue, language, and nation? The lamb. The second beast has horns like a lamb. And then later in this chapter, the second beast places a mark on the forehead of those who worship the beast in the same way that God puts a mark on his worshipers in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 12 and 13 describe the dragon and the two beasts mimicking God, pretending that they have the same authority as God. But it is a false, counterfeit kind of authority. And for those Christians who were reading this book 2,000 years ago, the members of those seven churches, they would have read this and thought it described their situation very, very well. They were living under a government called Rome that claimed that Caesar was the son of God. That claimed that Caesar was the one who brought peace to the whole world. That was trying to get God's people to worship Caesar rather than the lamb. Rome said, if you submit to us, all will be well with you. If you pledge allegiance to Rome, then all will be well with you. But what we see in the Roman government and in every government in the history of the world is that kings and thrones and powers try to take on more authority than God has given to them. That's what President Bush said he was experiencing, that temptation very early on in his presidency to grab on to more than what belonged to him. And every worldly government has this tendency to become beastly, to derive its power and authority from the dragon rather than from the lamb. 
And I believe that every Christian who has ever lived in every time and in every place could read Revelation 13 and see something of their own experience. The first Christians who read it, read it no doubt saw Emperor Nero and Emperor Domitian reflected in the actions of the beasts. Every government, every empire, every kingdom in the history of the world has been tempted to become like the dragon and the beast. Sometimes that's very obvious. China under Mao, Russia under Stalin, Germany under Hitler, the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. Sometimes it's very obvious the way that empires become beastly. And sometimes it's not so obvious. And we need to learn to have eyes that know how to see. Revelation is a work of political critique. It's a message through symbols that worldly power and authority and governments and institutions have a way of being profoundly influenced by the dragon. And they can start acting like the beast and believing that they're all-knowing, that they are all-powerful, that they are the ones who are in control. And friends, the temptation for us as followers of Jesus is to believe that lie. To allow ourselves to be deceived. To believe that the way things really happen in the world is through political power. And so we then identify and align ourselves with those powers that we think will benefit us in some way. And I want to suggest to you that this is what the symbol of 666 is all about. I want to continue reading in Revelation chapter 13. Verse 12. The second beast exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast for it is man's number. His name is 666. In Revelation chapter 7, it says that God marks his people with a seal on their foreheads. In Revelation 22, the last page of the Bible, we are told that God's redeemed people will have God's name written on their foreheads. This is a sign, a symbol of our identity, that we belong to God. His name is on us. No one can take that from us. It's our mark. It's God's brand on us. We belong to him. In the authorities of this world, whether governments or political identities or partisan groups or denominational labels or race or ethnic background... All of those different identities are trying to lay their claim on you. And they don't want to make their mark on you, saying you belong to us. And none of those things, political identities, partisan groups, race, ethnic identities, denominational labels, none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but they become corrupt when they try to make us place our, give our allegiance to them rather than to God. 
666 is man's number. It's a symbol of any and every brand that identify you that's not Jesus. Every single one of us, every single day, have to fight against something that is desiring and grasping for your allegiance, that wants to put its brand on you. People throughout history have wondered what 666 is, credit cards, a microchip, iPhones, um, most recently the COVID vaccine. These speculations, I suggest to you, miss the point. 666 is the temptation to take on some other mark, some other allegiance, some other identity on our forehead other than follower of Jesus. And it can be all sorts of things, political identity, partisanship, race, sexuality, ethnic background. And this is a warning for all Christians at all times to be aware when some other identity is laying claim on your life and demanding for your allegiance. And to make sure that Jesus is the one who has your allegiance. So friends, how do we follow the lamb in a world that is feverishly following the dragon? One of the ways that we've been called to do that here at Broadway is to be people of steadfast worship. It's one of the key characteristics of our church that we've named, that God has shown to us about who we are as a church, that we are a people of steadfast worship. We believe and declare that Jesus is the Lamb who is sovereign over all history and that he alone deserves our worship and our allegiance and our reverence. While there are all other kinds of powers and authorities in our world, all other kinds of different identities that want to make their mark on us, that claim to deserve our allegiance, we remember that Jesus the Lamb is the only one who deserves our whole heart, our whole allegiance, all of our worship. And friends, the early Christians were sent to the lions because they refused to take on any other mark, any other brand other than the brand Jesus. They were steadfast in their worship when it would have been easier, more convenient, more economically beneficial or safer to simply say Caesar is Lord in whatever circumstance they were supposed to do that. But they refused. They refused to take on the mark of Caesar. Instead, they declared that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that he is Lord of their own hearts, that he is even Lord over Caesar in his heart. And so as we finish today, I, I, want to, I want to ask you two different questions. I want to take a time of silence. And I'm going to ask you two different questions for you to consider as we finish in prayer. First is this. What power or authority or identity are you tempted to give your allegiance to? If we are going to remain steadfast worshipers of Jesus and bear his mark on our lives, then you need to know yourself. You need to know what you're tempted to follow. So, what power or authority are you tempted to give your allegiance to? Secondly, in what way in your daily life do you need to be more fully committed to steadfast worship of Jesus? What allegiance are you pulled to? Are you tempted to give your identity to? And in what way in your daily life do you need to be more fully committed to the steadfast worship of Jesus? Let's just take a couple of minutes to reflect on those two questions.
Lord, would you show each one of us the inclinations and movements and motivations of our heart away from you and towards other things, towards other allegiances? Would you show us that, reveal that to us so that we can repent and turn around? Lord, I pray that day by day that we would be people who worship you, who recognize who you are, who honor you, who give you praise with our words, with our actions, in our relationships. Lord, would you remind us today of the temptation to believe that we can get what we want by following the dragon's way, get what we need by following the dragon's way. Help us, Lord, to follow the way of the Lamb to follow the way of self-sacrificial love for our neighbor. Lord, would you show us how to do that and to live lives of worship in that way, in the way that you showed us to. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.